Yep. All right, so if you have a Bible, I'm going to ask you to do a little bit of multitasking to, um, to turn to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 in, I guess, one hand, and John chapter 12 in the other hand. We're going to go to 1 Corinthians 15 first, and then John chapter 12 second. So uh, 1 Corinthians 15 is where we'll start. All right, 1 Corinthians 15, where we'll begin. All right, and then we'll get into our study of John. We'll just use 1 Corinthians 15 as a little bit of a launching off point. Um, if you're there, just say amen for me. I know you're there. <clears throat> Again, I talk way too fast, so if you need to follow along with me, that's fine. Uh, and just listen is okay too, but if you want to follow along. 1 Corinthians 15 is, uh, I'm just going to read verse 1 to 4. And the Bible says, moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel. So he's going to tell us what the good news is. That's what gospel is. Which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand. By which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you, first of all, here comes the gospel. Here it is. That which I also received. How that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day, according to the scriptures. So, the gospel we preach, the things we proclaim, whether it's in here, on the street, uh, through the various opportunities God gives us, the message we're sending is about the death, the burial, and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the good news for this dispensation. That is the good news of this church age. That is the message. We're just the messengers. But I want you to notice verse number three. Because when Paul starts giving the gospel, he adds a little word in there that's really, really important. He says in verse three, I delivered unto you first of all that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins. See, the good news is not just that Jesus Christ died for our sins, but how Jesus Christ died for our sins. And if you read the Bible or not been living under a rock, Jesus Christ did not die by a spear for our sins. He did not die by us on a stake for our sins, no matter what your friends may tell you. And he definitely didn't get pummeled with stones for our sins. No, the Bible makes it very, very clear about how Jesus Christ died. He died on a cross. That's the how he died. Now go to John chapter 12. Here's why I'm saying that. Seems academic, but let me show you something in John chapter 12. John chapter 12 is where we've been studying and reading. And look at verse 32. John chapter 12, verse 32. When speaking about his death... Jesus Christ wanted to make it clear that you understood how. John chapter 12, verse 32. The Lord says, And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. This he said, signifying what death he should die. He didn't want to just tell you that he would die. He wanted you to understand how he would die. And when he spoke about his death, Jesus Christ, the Bible uses this word signifying. He wanted to signify or indicate the how. Because brethren, the how of his death is a big deal. Because the instrument of his death is very instructive. It teaches us something. It shows us something. And God uses that word signifying four times in your whole Bible. Signifying. And when God uses something four times, he's trying to establish something. Like you lay four corners of the foundation of a house. When God has given you something in a set of four, he's trying to establish a truth. And by using signifying four times, he's trying to establish the meaning of Jesus Christ's death. So we're going to look today. Because when you signify something, listen, you want to make its meaning known. You want people to understand 
what it's really all about. So our lesson today is this. Here's the title if you need a title. Lessons you can learn from a cross. What lessons can you learn from a cross so you can understand and appreciate Jesus Christ's death a little more? When we consider that he died on a cross and what that means for us today. So let's let's jump in. Let's have a word of prayer and jump in. Lord, we love you today. We thank you today. And pray, Lord, you just let the word of God go out clearly, strongly. Lord, if someone is here that doesn't know you for sure, Lord, I pray they would cling to that cross and be saved today, Father. They turn to that cross. And for those of us, Lord, many, I'm sure, that know the story of the cross, by looking at the cross and the lessons we can learn from a cross, let us appreciate it a little more. Hide us under the shadow of the cross, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Lesson number one, right there in John chapter 12, that you can learn from a cross that Jesus Christ was lifted up when he died. See that John chapter 12, verse 32? And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. This he said, signifying what death he should die. Why was it important that Jesus Christ be lifted up to die for the sins of men? Why couldn't they just run him through with a spear? Why couldn't they just hit him over the head with a rock? Why did Jesus Christ have to be lifted up between heaven and earth? To be the savior of all men. Well, let me give you a few thoughts on that. Go to Isaiah chapter 59, please. Isaiah chapter 59, please. Isaiah 59. Isaiah 59. Here's the first thing I see in him being lifted up. First, the cross teaches us that Jesus Christ was the only one who could stand between God and men. And that's where he was on the cross. Lifted up between heaven and earth. Between God and men. And Isaiah 59 uh, gives us a picture of a really bad time. It's Israel in a really bad way. It looks to all of our state. But look what he says. The children of Israel are saying, and you could just put your name in there. You're that we as well. We roar all like bears and mourn sore like doves. We look for judgment, but there is none for salvation. But it is far off from us. For our transgressions are multiplied before thee. God sees all your sins. God sees all your wicked ways. It's, a, it's an impasse between you and God. He keeps going and says, and our sins testify against us. They call us out and say, you're guilty, you're guilty, you're guilty. For our transgressions are with us. As for our iniquities, we know them. In transgressing and lying against the Lord and departing away from our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart words of falsehood, and judgment is turned away backward, and justice standeth afar off, for truth is fallen in the street, and equity cannot enter. I know this was written 700, oh no, sorry, 2,700 years ago, but this speaks to today. Iniquities abounding, evil abounding, God's judgment seems like it's nowhere to be found, and the truth is falling in the street. How many cars passed us by yesterday that wanted no truth? It just fell into the street, and they passed us by. Verse 15, yea, truth faileth, and he that departeth from evil maketh himself a prey. And so, so that's saying the guys that want to do right are hunted. And you live in a world where you want to do right, you're going to get a target on your back. And he says, uh, and, it, and, and the Lord saw it. That's a blessing. <laughs> the Lord saw it. You know, we think, I say it jokingly, we think God is a stupid, deaf Santa Claus on the sky somewhere. He's not. God is not mocked. <laughs> the eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good. The payday is going to come someday. Don't worry. And he says right there, and the Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no judgment. Now watch this. And he saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no intercessor, nobody to get between God and men, nobody who could fix this awful problem of sin between God and men. He says, therefore, his arm brought salvation unto him and his righteousness, it sustained him. You see, God was looking down at man and he was looking for somebody who could intercede who could intervene, who could interpose, who could get between the freight train of God's wrath that was headed for you and try to calm the war that you were at with God because of your sin. And he said there was nobody 
Nobody was qualified. Only Jesus Christ qualified. So his arm, that's Jesus Christ, the right arm of God, had to come and bring salvation and be the one to stand in the gap. Thank you, Lord Jesus. You know why he qualified? Because he was sinless. We underestimate that. You see, if you got a beef with somebody, I can't get between, I can't reconcile you to anyone else if you've already got a beef with me. I'm disqualified. You don't want to talk to me. You've already got a beef with me. That's why every religious everybody, I don't care how they dress, I don't care what they call themselves, they're all disqualified because all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. They've got a beef with God because of their sin too. They can't bring you to God. You need somebody sinless who has no sins of his own to get between you and God. Hebrews chapter 4 says the Lord Jesus Christ was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. You understand? He had no beef with God. Think about that. Hebrews 7 says of Jesus Christ that such an high priest became us who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners. He's not like you or I. Think with me of all the wrong thoughts, all the wrong deeds, all the wrong words you have every day. Think about all the wrong thoughts, all the wrong deeds, and all the wrong words you've had just today. Your Savior had none of them. He never thought a wrong thought. He never spoke a wrong word. He never did a wrong deed. He is altogether lovely. And I don't have anything new for you today. I endeavor to praise my Savior in this message today and just lift him up high today because if I can lift him up, he'll draw all men unto him. We underestimate that. Count how many sins you have in a day. You couldn't count them. We drink iniquity like water. You keep track of all the water you're drinking? God says Jesus Christ was holy and harmless. Go to 1 Timothy chapter 2. He was the only one that could be the intercessor. Go to 1 Timothy chapter 2. Here's another one along that line. 1 Timothy chapter 2. Look at verse number 3. We need to get to some repentance. We need to get to some mourning. We need to get to some shouting. We need to kind of shake off the sophistication, shake off the demure attitudes and, you know, the composure and realize that Jesus Christ was not composed and neat when he hung like a naked stake on a cross. For you and for me. Now look at 1 Timothy chapter 2. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 2 verse 3. The Bible says, For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. You know what God wants? Who will have all men to be saved. Hallelujah for that. And to come unto the knowledge of the truth. But to do that, to save you, he needed verse number 5. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men. The man, one who took on flesh. Christ Jesus. See, God needed not just an intercessor. God needed someone to mediate, to kind of put the argument to rest, to kind of like negotiate the two sides so there could be a ceasefire. The intercessor is the one that kind of took the hit. The mediator is the fact that he gets to go to God for you and to go to you for God. God needed somebody perfect to do that. Only Jesus Christ could do that. Only Jesus Christ qualified to do that because he is all God and he is all man, right? Now think about this. To, to mediate properly, you've got to be able to represent both sides accurately, right? Only Jesus Christ could do that because he was all God. He knew everything about God and he was all man. So he could represent man. He is the one mediator. Nobody else can mediate. I know some of you, I did it too. You went into the box and they slid the door over and you sat in the dark and you told the guy all your dirty deeds and he told you something to do. I know people do that, but that's not Bible. That's all. I'm, I'm not hating. I'm just saying that's not Bible. The Bible says there's one mediator between God and men. And I only call one person 
Holy Father. Nobody else, my friend. I'm not calling a man who is a sinner like me, no matter how he dresses, Holy Father. My Holy Father lives in heaven. And that shouldn't be an offense to you. And I'm not saying it to kind of be an offense or stick my thumb in your eye. That's just the fact. If somebody walked around and said, I'm Pat's wife, I'm Pat's wife. I'd say, you're not Pat's wife, that's my wife. I've got one wife, she's over there and I love her. You're not my wife. And when somebody walks around and say, I'm the Holy Father, I'm the Holy Father, I'm the mediator between God and men, you know what that is? That's blasphemous. That should be offensive to you. I'm not saying you wrestle to them in the ground and you stick your finger in their face and say they're wrong. But in your heart, you should be like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Uh, If you get a chance, let me just show you that that's not true. Can you see why Jesus Christ was lifted up between heaven and earth? You see why God put him like that? The mediator between God and men? There he is, suspended between heaven and earth. That's why he died that way, as an object lesson, that he's the intercessor and the mediator between God who's up there and man who's down here, and he's right there in the middle, suspended for all to see. I'll tell you something, another reason why he got lifted up, go to Hebrews chapter 12, to the right a little bit. Isn't he a great savior? Oh, what a savior that he died for me. Those are good songs today, Eli, good songs, good thought. You know, it's like we had the same spirit, amen? It's the Holy Spirit. Hebrews chapter 12. Number two, I see why he was lifted up. Here's another thought for you. Second, the cross teaches us that only Jesus Christ could bear the shame that you and I deserve. Hebrews chapter 12, look at verse 1. The Bible says, Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame. Brethren, you know the cross was shameful? If they took Jesus in the back room and put a bullet in his head, that's done like in secret. The cross was a shameful act. The cross was a public spectacle where you were exposed for all to see. People get embarrassed if they talk to someone with food in their teeth. You know, right? Right? You go there, you have that steak, you look at your friend, you go, am I good? Right? Husbands turn to wives, wives turn to husband. Am I good? You know, I need a toothpick, I need some floss, right? Because heaven forbid you talk to somebody and there's that piece of broccoli between your front two teeth. It's like, it's not up there, it's like a mortal sin with murder or something like that. Really, it's up there for some people. You know what people do? People do everything they can to hide their sin. People do everything they can to cover their shame. That's why I'm thankful you showed up with clothes on today. Because ever since the Garden of Eden, man has been trying to cover his nakedness and cover his shame because of his sin exposed in front of a holy God. It even says in the book of Job, written so long ago about Adam, it says in Job 31, if I covered my transgressions as Adam by hiding my iniquity in my bosom. You know, when Adam was making that fig leaf clothing, those aprons, he was trying to cover something that was in his heart that God saw. And we do that. We all do that. You know why? Because sin brings shame. Sin brings reproach. Sin brings problems. Sin brings trouble. But can you just, with me now, can you just see Jesus Christ on that cross? Can you see him innocent, naked? He had no loincloth. His last bit of clothes they gambled away at the foot of that cross. We draw him for decency's sake with something on him, but he was on that cross. He was naked on that cross. Can you see him like that up there? Exposed like that? The shame you would feel? I remember being in high school and we were doing a play and you, you, know, you did these plays with these Broadway outfits. You know what? They could break away. You know, and you, so you could change quickly. I remember being in this big scene. Is Kim and Dino here? No, Kim's not in here. And uh, I was Nathan Detroit in Guys and Dolls. And uh, 
My Adelaide, not Mark's Adelaide, but my Adelaide is singing her song at me, and I heard the whole audience go, whoa, you know, they screamed and they gasped, and I thought, wow, we did a good job. This, you know, it was like a duet. I was like, yeah, this was it. I found out a little later that she was swinging her arms like this, and the breakaway dress opened up. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and everybody saw more than they should have seen for the price of admission, right? You know what that was for that young lady, a, a friend of mine? It was shame. <laughs> you know, they saw, you know, it wasn't like lewd and triple X, you'll get your minds out of the gutter, but it was just like more than she wanted to see, and it was shameful. There's Jesus Christ on the cross, and they're seeing everything. They're seeing him everything. Can you see Jesus Christ bearing the shame of all your sin for all to see? That's your nakedness on that cross. That's your reproach on that cross. That's your shame on that cross. You appreciate him a little bit more? And you see Hebrews 12, verse 2, you know what he thought about that shame? The Bible says he despised the shame. That means he thought nothing of it. You think so much of it. The broccoli was in my teeth. Why didn't you tell me broccoli was in my teeth? I must have looked so foolish. He's up there naked on the cross, ashamed and embarrassed. And the Bible says he despised, he thought nothing of the shame because that shame meant you could be saved. What a Savior is right. What a Savior is right. We sing a song, bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood. And you know what the title of that song is? Hallelujah, what a Savior. That's what goes right there. Now go to John chapter 3. Let me tell you one other reason why he was lifted up. John chapter 3. John chapter 3, verse number 14. The Bible says, John 3, 14, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be, there's those words again, lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have eternal life. You know the last thing him being lifted up shows me? If you're paying attention, I know you might be writing stuff down, I don't know. The cross teaches us that every man must believe on Jesus Christ to be saved. Now, we talked about this a few weeks ago, the story of the fiery serpents that bit the people. Picture of sin right there, complaining against God there, griping against God. He lets these serpents bite them, and they start dying. And, and they're all dropping like flies, and they're dying. And, 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 and God tells Moses, make a serpent of brass and put it on a pole and lift it up. And he says in Numbers, if a serpent had bitten any man when he beheld the serpent of brass, he lived. Now, you know what it took to look up at that serpent of brass? It took faith. Because there you are. You're dying. Your friend's dying. Your, your, your family's dying. You're trying to figure out, how do I put that X on me, cut my skin, bleed the venom out, do something? How do I fix this myself? You had to stop trying to do it yourself and lift up your eyes and see the help that God had put from above. It took faith to look to that curse that God put on that pole. And you know what happens? Jesus Christ shows up. And John the Baptist says, <clears throat> let me get my voice good. Behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. He said, like you beheld the serpent of brass in the wilderness, I want you to get your eyes on this Lamb of God who was going to die for your sins. You know what it takes to do that? It takes faith. It takes faith if you stop looking at your own deeds, stop looking at your own mistakes, stop looking at your own hands, stop looking at your friend doing this and your mom doing that and your brother doing this and the community doing that and the country going this way and lift up your eyes to the help that God has sent from above. It takes faith to look outside of yourself and it takes faith to look above yourself. He didn't throw that serpent on the floor. He said, lift that puppy up so people would have to lift up their eyes like they need to lift up their eyes to heaven and turn to God. Amen. And God lifted up Jesus Christ on a hill far away on an old rugged cross so you could just look and live. He did that for you. 
We know what God said in the Old Testament. He said in Isaiah 45, look unto me, all the ends of the earth. Look unto me and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is none else. He didn't let Jesus die in a cave. He didn't let Jesus die in a hole somewhere. He didn't let Jesus die in secret. He put him up there for everybody to see because he's the savior of all men. He wants to broadcast it. And that's what he left us to do. Go out there and broadcast it. Lift his name up. Listen, you know, there's some people that have died in history that there's mystery surrounding it, right? Like, take like an Adolf Hitler, you know. Um, There's so much mystery surrounding Hitler's death. I know he bit the cyanide pill and blew his brains out in a bunker and all that stuff. But there's still like mystery surrounding it because not a lot of people saw it. Not a lot of people witnessed it. Not a lot of people able to come back and say, yo, yo, this is how it happened, right? That, it didn't happen, but Jesus Christ wasn't killed or died in a corner. You know what, you know what Paul actually told the Galatians in Galatians 3.1? He says, Jesus Christ hath been evidently set forth, crucified among you. He's saying Jesus Christ's death is a matter of public record. It was clearly and obviously done, and everybody around the world that time kind of got the word that it happened. Paul's talking to King Agrippa. He's in chains. He's in bonds. He's telling King Agrippa about Jesus Christ being the Savior. He says, yo, King. Probably didn't say it like that. I'm just, you know, can I get a rap? You know, he says, Hey, Mr. Agrippa, your highness, this thing was not done in a corner. He says, you heard about this, didn't you, king? Even though you're not from Jerusalem. You heard about it. And he had heard about it. Because those disciples in that word, it was turning the world upside down. You say, how do you know? Check the date. Have you checked the date? It's September 4th. Sorry, Rachel. It's September 4th, 2022. All of history hangs on that one act. The actual course of history was changed because Jesus Christ lived, loved, and died and rose again. So this thing wasn't done in a corner. This thing wasn't done under a hole somewhere. God lifted this thing up for all the world to see and all the world to believe. Even, listen, even the lost unsaved Jewish historian Josephus in the first century reported about a Jesus of Nazareth who was condemned to die by Pilate of Rome. It was not, listen, listen, these are the words of Josephus, a lost Jewish historian recounting what was going on in the first century. And he writes, at this time there was a wise man who was called Jesus. And his conduct was good, and he was known to be virtuous. And many people from among the Jews and the other nations became his disciples. Pilate condemned him to be crucified and to die. That's the report of a lost Jewish historian from the first century. So get this notion out of your head that the news tells you. It's not a fairy tale. It's not some like wishful thinking. It's not some pie in the sky, hokey religion that you got like some of the other ones got out there. You've got a verifiable factual historical event that Jesus Christ died on the cross for all to see and all to believe. The question is not, did it happen? The question is, are you going to look and live. Don't sit there in your chair and say, well, that's just the way you see it. That's madness. All right. George Washington was the first president. Well, that's just the way you see it. No, it's not. That's historical fact. All right. Uh, Napoleon tried to conquer the world. You know, he's that French guy. Yeah. Well, well, that's just the way you, that's a matter of interpretation. No, it's historical fact. Jesus Christ died on the cross and rose again. That's not me putting my faith in some wishful thinking. That's historical fact, demonstrable fact. It happened. The only question is, are you going to believe those facts? Are you going to hide behind your own wicked heart that doesn't want to believe the facts? Right? The question is yours. But I learned a lot from that cross for him being lifted up. Can you go to John chapter 18? I'll give you a little more. John chapter 18. John 18, look at verse 28. You know what else? Here's my second point. Here's my second big one. You know what else you can learn from a cross? 
You can learn from a cross that Jesus Christ was executed by Romans. You say, Pat, newsflash, I know that. Okay, let's just give me a second to earn my meager attention. John 18, 28. Then led they Jesus from Caiaphas unto the hall of judgment. And it was early, and they themselves went not into the judgment hall, lest they should be defiled, but that they might eat the Passover. Those pious religious people. Oh, I don't want to go in there and help condemn this innocent man to death because I don't want to defile myself. They're wicked as the devil's hind leg already. But they don't want to, you know, break the Passover traditions. You know what that is? That's religion at its best. (laughs) They'll be the most crooked, wicked, twisted people. But, you know, I went to church or I kept the feast. That's what they're doing. There's a disease that exists in religious people everywhere. It's called hypocritus. Hippocrates is a deadly disease that religious people all seem to have. All right? Keep reading. Pilate then went out unto them and said, What accusation bring ye against this man? They answered and said unto him, If he were not a malefactor, we would not have delivered him up unto thee. Then said Pilate unto them, Take ye him and judge him according to your law. The Jews therefore said unto him, It is not lawful for us to put any man to death. You know, I'll just have you do it. Okay, right. Verse 32, watch this. That the saying of Jesus might be fulfilled, which he spake, signifying what death he should die. He had to be delivered to the Romans because the Romans were the ones that were being crucified. The Jews would stone people. Jesus had to be crucified. So he has all this worked out because Jesus Christ had to be executed by Romans. The Jews may have called for his blood, but the Romans crucified the Messiah. What is the significance of the Romans being the ones who actually executed Jesus Christ? Well... Go to Psalm 22. I'll show you. I'm just trying to unpack the significance for you. It's all right there. But what does it signify? God's using this word signify, signify, signify. You know what it says? Here's the first thing it says to me that he had to be executed by Romans. First, it means that Jesus Christ fulfilled all the prophecies concerning God's Savior. He did everything God said he was going to do. He fulfilled all the predictions that God laid out to verify that he was God's Messiah. Look at Psalm 22, verse number one. Tell me if this doesn't ring a bell. This is written a thousand years before the cross. A thousand years before the cross. And it begins, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? I read a little bit in my New Testament. I find out that's what Jesus Christ said on the cross. What's David saying it for? What's David writing it for? There it is a thousand years before Jesus Christ even came of a virgin. The spirit of Christ that spake by David foretells the crucifixion. Can you take that in? A thousand years before he died, you know what he was going to say on the cross through the spirit of David speaking. So Psalm 22 is all about the crucifixion. All right? You read a little bit, and you get down to verse 16. And in verse 16, that spirit of Christ, right, that voice of Jesus Christ speaking through David says, for dogs have compassed me. They've surrounded me. The assembly of the wicked have enclosed me. They, those dogs, pierced my hands and my feet. David never got his hands or his feet pierced. Who is he talking about? That's the spirit of your Savior speaking through that book. You know what he's saying? The dogs are going to pierce me. You know who the dogs are? Gentiles. You know who the dogs are? The Romans. God predicted that Gentile dogs would pierce his hands and his feet. Those were the Romans. Brethren, please take that in if you're a bit of a naysayer. Hundreds of years before crucifixion was even conceived. It was conceived by the Roman, by, by the Persians, but it was perfected by the Romans. The Persians started doing it 400 years before Christ. This is a thousand years before Christ. 
Christ. So hundreds of years before crucifixion was even conceived, the Bible is telling you about it. How it would happen, how the Savior would die, and who would do it. I learned that from the Roman cross. Go to Psalm 69. Go over there. Here's another psalm about Jesus Christ dying. Psalm 69. I want to impress upon you that God wrote the Bible. (laughs) God inspired the Bible. We have not followed cunningly devised fables, all right? And look at... um, Psalm 69, verse 20. This is, again, a messianic psalm. It is the Spirit of Christ speaking through David, because David never experienced these things, being under the water, going unto his soul, nothing like that. And in verse 20, he says, Reproach hath broken my heart. You know, your Savior had a broken heart when he died. And I am full of heaviness. And I looked for some to take pity, but there was none. And for comforters, but I found none. That's your Savior suffering for your sins. They gave me also gall for my meat, and in my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. You know, the Bible prophesied that this crucified Savior would cry, I thirst from the cross, and they'd give him vinegar to drink. A thousand years before anybody even knew what a cross was in Jerusalem. Go to John chapter 19, I'll show you. How, how this shows that Jesus Christ fulfilled all God wanted him to do. Go to John chapter 19, please. Hurry with me, please. John chapter 19. John chapter 19, look at verse uh, 20, uh, 28. John 19, 28. <clears throat> Jesus Christ has just taken care of his mother, his earthly mother, right? That's a, he's dying on the cross. He's making sure, John, you take care of Mary. Mary, John's going you know, to be your son now. He's going to take care of you like a son should take care of you. And it says in John 19, 28, after this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, saith, I thirst. Now there was set a vessel full of vinegar, and they filled a sponge with vinegar and put it upon hyssop and put it to his mouth. When Jesus therefore had received the vinegar, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. I want you to notice that when Jesus Christ fulfilled all God required, only then could he say, it is finished. Can you picture your savior now? He's dying on the cross and he's going through the Old Testament prophecies. Zechariah, I hit those. Isaiah, I hit those. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. He's going through, and he hits Psalms. He goes, ooh, ooh, I got to get that one. I thirst! And they give him vinegar. And when he says, Father, I covered all the prophecies. I fulfilled them all. Then he says, it is finished. And he gave up the ghost. Man, you ever tell somebody... Like, you know, if you had kids, you tell somebody your son would do something. Oh, they'll take out the garbage. Oh, they'll take care of that for you. And they didn't finish the job. It's a reproach, right? It's a shame. Oh, I said my son would clean up the yard. He didn't clean up the yard for you. Oh, yeah, my son, you know, threw the ball over the fence. I said he would get it. He didn't do that for you. You know, I'm not speaking from anything that happened in my life. Don't worry. Right? But anyway, it's a reproach. Jesus Christ finished everything God said he was going to do. He fulfilled every promise that God said he was going to keep. He fulfilled every prophecy that God said concerning him. That's miraculous. That's amazing. That's why Jesus Christ was well-pleasing to his Father. Is he well-pleasing to you? Or does he bore you? Is he not as exciting as your TikTok? Or as your movie? Or as your friendship? Or as your lunch date today? God help us when the preaching of the cross becomes dull and boring and trite. Tell me about the hairs in the angel's armpit, Pat. Tell me about, you know, how many seraphim and how they're different from the cherubim, Pat. Or how about, on a hill far away stood an old rugged cross. I would get it back to that a little bit. That's what's going to help my heart. You know what else I learned from that <clears throat> Roman cross? Not just that the prophecies were fulfilled, but that payment for sin was finished. You see, the Roman cross had two pieces. A vertical beam that stood upright, 
and a horizontal transom that went like that. Now go to Matthew 22, you say, why that? Why didn't he die on a stake like our Jehovah's Witness friends say he did? Why do we know it had to be a cross with a vertical beam like this and a horizontal transom like this? I'll tell you. Matthew 22, all right? Here's the because. Because Jesus Christ died for your vertical sins against God and all your horizontal sins against man. He took care of all your transgressions that were this way and all your wickedness that went this way. He covered it all on the cross. Look at Matthew 22. Look at verse number 35. Matthew 22, verse number 35. The Bible says, Then one of them, which was a lawyer, Stephen's a good lawyer, but that's a different kind of lawyer. Then one of them, which was a lawyer, asked him a question, tempting him and saying, Master, which is the great commandment in the law? Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. Can I tell you, Jesus Christ first died for all you loved ahead of God. All your vertical sins. Those are those first four commandments. They're all vertical. All the stuff you've put ahead of God, love and sex and power and pleasure and self, all the gods you've made in your own image with your hands or with your heart. I think God is this way. I don't think God would do that. I don't think God's like that. How do you know anything about God apart from his word? All the times you took God's name in vain. I don't mean when you said G, you know, GD when a paint can fell on your toe. I mean when you said that you were saved by his name and you took it in vain. He died for that. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. You didn't have to worship him on a special day, but God said, could you set some time aside for me? And you trampled that too. And Jesus Christ took care of all that beef between you and God. All those vertical sins that were an impasse between you and God. And then he gets to the second part of this little speech here. And he says in verse 38, 39, and the second is like unto the first, unto it, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Jesus Christ didn't just die for the vertical. He died for the horizontal too. He died for all the things you loved instead of your neighbor. Those are the rest of the commandments. The disobedience to parents. The hatred in your heart that God said is the same as murder. The lust in your heart that God sees and calls adultery. But I didn't. Yeah, God saw it. He saw your heart. It was as good as done in your heart. You didn't have to do it to God. He saw it. All the things you took, commandment number eight, all the lies you told and the chaff truths and the manipulation and the double backs and the white lies and the black lies and the polka dot lies, all that, and all the things you coveted from somebody else and that envy as you watch what they have and he has and she has and why don't I have? You know what, Jesus Christ, he died for those two. He covered those two. Praise the Lord. No, but a cross cannot stand without that vertical beam. The vertical beam is the important part. That's what holds it up. And Jesus Christ had to fix your relationship with God first, this way, before he could fix your relationship with man this way. That's why it was a cross, brethren. That's why it wasn't a stake or a rock or a spear. That's why it was a cross. He fixed your relationship this way so he could repair all the broken things this way. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Now the Romans, they developed crucifixion as a public deterrent for all men to behold. You were supposed to be like, you know, you know, Hebrew Johnny walking, you know, the, you know, the goat and look up on that hill and see a guy dying and think to yourself, I better not steal this goat. <laughs> I better not, you know, kill that guy that wants to steal my goat. <laughs> right? It was supposed to scare them with fear. But God used crucifixion as a proclaimed drawing for all men to believe. He said, look now and believe, not to scare you with fear, but to save you by faith. 
You learn that from a cross. Now go to John chapter 13. I got two quick ones. You got to hurry with me so I can finish this and feel like I covered my curriculum, okay? John chapter 13. I'm kidding. Really fast. These last ones are short. You know what else you can learn from a cross? You can learn from a cross that Jesus Christ's arms are always open. John chapter 13, he's talking to Peter. John chapter 13, look at verse number 36. And the Bible says, he's getting, Jesus is getting ready to go to his own cross. And he says in John 13, 36, Simon Peter said unto him, Lord, whither goest thou? Jesus answered him, whither I go, thou canst not follow me now, but thou shalt follow me afterwards. Peter said unto him, Lord, why cannot I follow thee now? I will lay down my life for thy sake. Jesus answered him, wilt thou lay down thy life for my sake? You see, before going to his cross, Jesus Christ alludes to Peter one day going to his own cross. Go to John 21. I'll show you. He brings it up again in John 21. Go to John 21. Look at verse 18. Just trying to teach you a little bit of Bible here. John 21, 18. This is now after the resurrection. John 21, 18. Jesus tells Peter, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, when thou wast young... Thou girdest thyself and walkest whither thou wouldest. But when thou shalt be old, thou shalt stretch forth thy hands, and another shall gird thee and carry thee whither thou wouldest not. This spake he, signifying by what death he should glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he saith unto him, follow me. So after his resurrection, Jesus Christ prophesies how Peter would one day die on a cross with his arms stretched out and fastened against his will to be carried where he wouldn't want to be carried. Now history tells us, not scripture, but history tells us that Jesus, that that Peter was crucified upside down. So he didn't rob Jesus Christ of any glory. And when you're crucified, they stretch forth your hands, like Jesus mentions here, and they bind them or they gird them, and that, meaning they fasten them to that tree. Which means if Peter was going to follow him like that, when Jesus Christ was crucified, they stretched forth his hands and nailed him to the tree, brethren. They nailed his arms wide open. And you sit there sometimes, saved, washed in the blood, knowing the cross, and you think to yourself, how much does God really love me? And he says, you know what you could learn from the cross? That on the cross, he stretched his arms out wide and let them get fastened there to say to you, I loved you this much. Maybe you're sitting here and wondering, can I really come to Jesus Christ with anything? Can I really come to Christ with anything? He nailed his arms open wide on the cross. Not like this, like some people want to say. Not like this, like this. So you could come to him with anything, at any time. So you could fulfill what did he say while he was alive. Come unto me. All ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. His arms are open. The question is, are you going to come? Are you going to sit there like a lump on a log? You're going to come. I'm not saying a physical movement to me, but are you going to come to that cross? Come to that Savior? Go to Romans chapter 8, two books to the right. Romans chapter 8. I just wish I could. I, I'm trying my best to just impress you with the Lord today. I'm, I'm trying. I can't do him justice. But if I could, I'm trying to do him justice. I can't ever, but I wish I, by the Holy Spirit of God, if I could just do him justice. So you just fall at that cross and say, Lord, I surrender all, Lord. Here, just use me, guide me, save me if I'm not saved. Man. Romans 8.32 says, He that spared not his own son but delivered him up for us all. You believe that? God, do you believe that God died for you? Jesus Christ died for you? Say amen one more time. All right, let's look at the second half of the verse. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? If he put his son through that, 
I mean, if, if, if God put his son on a cross to save your soul, don't you think he'll save your life? Don't you think he'll help you with fill in the blank? I, had, I got a cousin who's up in years, but he had a younger brother. And his younger brother, many, many years ago, I was just a kid, got aplastic anemia. And he needed a bone marrow transplant. And I remember going up to Sloan and visiting him. He was behind like sheets and plastic in quarantine because he had no immune system. We know a little bit about that now. But um, my cousin basically laid down his life, so to speak, to give his brother his bone marrow so he could live. And he got better. They both were better. They both became successful men. My cousin who gave that bone marrow became a very wealthy man. He's retired now. But years after he gave his bone marrow, his cousin got into some financial problems. And don't you know, the same cousin that gave his bone marrow had no problem giving him some money. I mean, if he was willing to lay down his life for his brother's sake, it was easy to give him some money. And if God was willing to lay down his son's life to redeem your soul, it's easy to give you, what do you need? What do you need? What do you need today? Go to Psalm 85. I'll finish this point in Psalm 85, and then I'll jump to my last little one here. Psalm 85. Psalm 85. What do you need today? The Lord's arms are open. I learned that from the cross. Psalm 85. Psalm 85. Look at verse 7. Psalm 85. Look at verse 7. Thank you for your attention. Psalm 85, 7. The Bible says, Show us thy mercy, O Lord. Grant us thy salvation. I will hear what God the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace unto his people and to his saints. But let them not turn again to folly. Surely his salvation is nigh them that fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. Watch this verse 10. Mercy and truth are met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. You know, all these attributes of God are reconciled at the cross. Mercy and truth, righteousness and peace have kissed each other at the cross. They all came together at the cross. Because when you fell short of God's truth, Jesus Christ gave you God's mercy. When you weren't right with him and had no peace with God, he made peace with God and gave you his righteousness. They're all met together at the cross. So what do you need today? Do you need any mercy now? Because you haven't kept God's truth? Hey, don't answer out loud, but I know I haven't. I haven't been everything this book says I should be. You know what I need? Mercy. I need God to give me less than the punishment I deserve. That's mercy. No, I could get that through Jesus Christ. His arms are open. Hey, have you, have you lost the peace with God and the peace of God because there's some things in your life you're not doing right? You know what? You can come to Jesus Christ. He'll make those things right. He'll restore that peace. They're all possible because of the cross. Verse 11 says, truth shall spring out of the earth. You know what that is? The resurrection. When truth and life and the way came up out of the earth, you know what he says next? And righteousness and, uh, shall look down from heaven. The risen Christ is God's promise that you can make all things right with him. Because that one who is the truth came up from the earth, guess what? Righteousness can look down from heaven upon your family, upon your soul, upon your life. God says, my risen son and what he did on that cross is enough that you can make all things right with me if you come to the one whose arms are nailed open wide at the cross. Verse number 12, yea, the Lord shall give that which is good. Do you believe it? And our land shall yield her her increase. Righteousness shall go before him and shall set us in the way of his steps. All those blessings follow because something met at the cross, rose out of the earth, and now you have the opportunity to make something right. If Jesus Christ's arms are always open, you know what he wants to do? He wants to lead you all the way. He says, don't tie him there, nail him there. They're always open because that good shepherd wants to lead you and guide you. The question is, will you let him? Will you let him? Let's finish in Hebrews 9. I got one last little point about the cross. Hebrews chapter 9. 
last thing you can learn from a cross is in Hebrews 9. It's the last time he uses the word signifying. All I've really been doing is just jumping through the areas that the four times God says signifying. Hebrews 9. Here's the last thing you can learn from a cross. You can learn from a cross that you can come to God right now. Right now. You say, when? I mean now. (laughs) In the Greek, it means now. (laughs) Now, okay? In the Aramaic, it means now, all right? In the Stunat, it means now, okay? Now. Three letters, one syllable, now. You don't have to wait for a song. You don't have to wait for an invitation. In your heart and mind, you can come to God right now through Jesus Christ. I learned that from a cross. Hebrews 9, verse 1. Then verily the first covenant had also ordinances of divine service in a worldly sanctuary. For there was a tabernacle made, the first wherein was the candlestick and the table and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. And after the second veil, the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all. So in that Old Testament temple, you had the outer court, and then you walked into the, to the sanctuary, right? That's where the priest could go in and out. That's where the table of showbread was, the candlestick. And every morning, they'd put the showbread hot from God's oven on the table there. But then there was this other place called the holiest of all, where the mercy seat was, where God actually dwelt. And there was a separation there called a veil. And that veil separated man from God. That veil was 60 feet high, 30 feet wide, and about four inches thick. It was a man's hand's breadth. It was without any subtlety announcing to everybody, do not enter. You cannot approach a holy God. If you walked in there, you would have dropped dead. God would have killed you on the spot. That's what would have happened. Verse number six. Now, when these things were thus ordained, the priests went always into the first tabernacle, right? Um, accomplishing the service of God. That's where the table of showbread was, like I said. That was like room number one. But into the second went the high priest alone once every year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the errors of the people. Watch it now. The Holy Ghost, this signifying that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while as the first tabernacle was yet standing. So in that system, only the high priest could come before God once every year. And he better come with blood. He better have made a sacrifice for his own sins and the sins of his people because if he walked in there with sin in his life that was not covered by the blood, guess what? He would have dropped dead. That's why they sewed little bells into the bottom of his, his garments. They wanted to hear if the bells were still going. That means he was still alive. If the bells stopped ringing, that means he had sin in his life and he dropped dead. And they had to like drag him out of something with a rope or a hook because he had sin in his life. You had to walk into God once with the right heart attitude. Verse 11. But. <laughs> I like this but. But. <laughs> Christ being come and high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. Listen, Jesus Christ died on the cross to give us something better than the Old Testament, greater than the Old Testament, more amazing than what Moses had. You know what he gave us? A way into God. Not once a year, not with your own blood of a bull of a sacrifice, because of his blood, you could come through that blood whenever you need to, as often as you will. When he died on that cross, it says, the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom. God started that rip. God ripped, no man could have ripped that curtain 60 feet high, 30 feet wide, four inches thick. I know some of you guys got big hands. You crack like my head with it or something like that, but you weren't ripping that thing open. God says, I'm just going to rip this thing right down the middle. And he's telling everybody the way to God is now always open. It's always open on my end. It's open. Amen. Why don't you come? Why won't you come? Right now, I know what those priests did. You know what they did? What you would have done? They sewed the veil back up. <laughs> they got out their singer machine or whatever they used or whatever they got, and they just, you know, I probably sewed that sucker back up. And they said, "Okay, get the hoist it back up, and we'll do it. And we'll be back good to go." No, no, no. 
I know what happens. God says, it's always open. And then you stumped and start sewing it up. Something in your heart says, I could come to God. I can make this right. God says, yeah, you could come. I've opened the door for you. Come ahead. Come on. And the devil goes, no, you can't come. That's just for missionaries and pastors. No, you can't come. You've been a bad boy this week. No, no, you can't come. What will people think of you? No, you can't come. What will everybody, you know, what will they say? What's going to happen? You could be a nut job like Pat. You can't come. You can't come. And God's saying, the Holy Spirit's saying, come. 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 He died so you could come. No matter what, no matter who sews the veil up, will you come to God through Jesus Christ right now? You know nothing else good can happen in your life until you come. Look at verse number 13. Look at 13. All right. Uh, Before you read 13, you know, there's been days, like on a Thursday night when we have Bible study and I get here early because I'm a psychopath. You know, I get here and there's been days where I pulled up, had all my equipment ready to go and the door's locked. And, and, and I wanted, there was so much I wanted to do. There was so much I wanted to set up and get settled. You know what? The door wasn't open, and I couldn't get anything going. And you might say, I want to fix this relationship, and I want to fix that. But guess what? If you don't walk through the door, you ain't getting anything good going on in your life. If you don't come to God through the door that Jesus Christ made, guess what? You can forget it all. You can forget it all because it's only going to last a little while and then you're going to blow it again, mess it up again, screw it up again. You want to fix something? You've got to come through that door. You've got to come God's way. You've got to get down on your knees or bow your heart and say, Lord, fix me, fix this, fix everything. Save me if I'm not saved. Wherever you are today, you've got to come to God through Jesus Christ right now. And that way you can make everything else right. But you've got to walk through the door. Verse 13 says, For if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of an heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctified to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? He's saying, Because Jesus Christ opened that door and shed his blood, you can walk in victory and you can have a life that pleases God. It's available. Verse 24, for Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands. He's not not a building, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us. Jesus Christ not only made the way to God, he's at the right hand of God for you. He's interceding for you. He's praying for you. He's up there for you. I know how it works in the world. You want to get in the union. You need to be sponsored for something. You got to get in the special club. I want to be a a this or that. You know what you do. I got a guy. And you call your guy on the inside. Put in a good word for me. Get me in. And they hook you up. You cut the line. You get in. Listen, man. If you need something from God today, you can call your God man on the inside. You got a guy on the inside. You need strength? I got a guy. You need hope? I got a God man. I don't want to blaspheme and call him a guy. I got a, I got a God man on the inside who is there appearing for God, in front of God for you. So when you come, you can come in his name. You can come in his righteousness. You can come on his behalf. And you can get the blessings that God would give his son that he gives you through Jesus Christ. I may be dumb, but I'm not stupid. Why wouldn't you come? Why would you white knuckle wait God out? I don't know what I'm telling you to do anything but something that would help you. (laughs) That's all I'm telling you. Last verse, chapter 10, right across the page, verse 19. I want to know, if the door is open, just just reason this out with me, then we'll pray. Don't worry, I spent, right? If the door is open... And Jesus Christ is there for you. Why won't you come boldly? Why wouldn't you just rush down to his arms and rush into his embrace and pour out your heart to him and ask him to help you and fix you and make things right? Chapter 10, verse 19 says, Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, 
which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say his flesh, he broke his flesh open so you could walk in. And having a high priest, not only the death, but now he's a priest for you, right? That's his ministry now. Now he intercedes for you. And having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near. That should be the outgrowth of the things you know. If you profess it with your head, what you should be doing is let us draw near. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our body washed with pure water. He's saying, if Jesus Christ did that, if he made the way and he's up there for you, you should come boldly, get some things cleaned up with the assurance and the faith that God will help you because he died on the cross and made the way possible that you could come to God right now. Listen, don't answer out loud. Don't say amen to this. But right, those doors are open in the back, right? The doors are open. If I told you the doors are open, there's a million dollars in cash just thrown in the back hallway. If you want it, you can go get it. You'd not, I mean, Brian, his teeth would get knocked out. You'd be walking so fast to get out that door to grab what is out there right now. Amen, Amen brother. Yeah, I, I know. I probably, I'm standing up already. I probably beat you out. You know? <laughs> You still got to get up, get out of the aisle. I'd be like, I'd tell you halfway up the aisle. Yeah, there's money out here. You can all get it. You come boldly. Why won't you come? Why won't you come boldly to God's throne of grace to get all the riches he has for you? All the help he has for you. All the blessings he has for you. The cross teaches me that you can come to God right now. Can learn a lot from a cross, can't you? That's why God ordained Jesus Christ to die that way, to signify for us or instruct us, indicate for us these blessed truths that don't change. I know it happens. We're saved. Are you saved? Say amen. Amen. We're saved for a little length of time. You know what happens? We hear Christ died for our sins all the time. Let's never forget the how. Let's never forget the how so we never get bored or dull of hearing it. You know, 1707, Isaac Watts, page 118, Isaac Watts, he, uh, you can come ahead, Stephen, or somebody, play this. He's saying, uh, I don't know if you can play it, if you can't play it, it's okay. But 1707, Isaac Watts penned a song, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross.